Thank you. Okay, so how many of you were in the last panel, just so I know? How many are weren't in that panel? Okay, so a few people. I'm going to talk about how to get a job in technical writing, which I know is really practical, especially when you're at this literary conference and you've got your head in books and are thinking about you know, grand romantic ideas. And So I don't mean to bring you way back down to earth. I want to try to inspire you a little bit with the possibilities for creativity in technical writing. And I'm going to start with this little cartoon. If you can't read, this is uh, created by my colleague Ben Minson. And the, the bird down here is reading an instructional manual called Nest Building for the Instinct Impaired. And the bird's wife says, Aha, I don't need instructions, you said. The manual is for nincompoops, you said. Well, I guess we know who's what, don't we? And I like this because I think, especially today, technology is really ever-present. It's required. There's so many applications that are coming out, so many web applications. Even using Facebook or iTunes can be confusing, and there's online help that people refer to. So even if you're a, you know, a tech-savvy bird, you still need to figure out how to build a nest. You've, you've got a, a need for instructions, especially today, more than any other time because of the explosion of technology. And that's why the field of technical writing is super relevant. Now, uh, this is another, this, this is drawn by somebody who does lots of cartoons. And I think more than anything, the qualifications you need for a technical writer are good common sense. And this cartoon just encapsulates everything that I think about you know, what you need to be a technical writer. So it says, Dear various parents, grandparents, coworkers, and other not computer people, we don't magically know how to do everything in every program. When we help you, we're usually just doing this. Start. Find a menu item or button which looks related to what you want to do. Okay, click it. Did it work? No. Okay, have you been trying this for a half hour? You know, go back to the find a, find a menu item. Uh, I can't find one. Pick one at random. Click it. Did it work? No. Okay, keep trying. You know, I've tried them all. Google the Google the name of the program plus a few words what you want of what you want to do. Uh, follow any instructions. And finally, you know, if you can't figure that out after all that, then ask somebody for help. And really, I feel like that's what I do most of the day. And my wife isn't isn't as into computers, so when she needs help, um, this is usually what I do. I'm like, you get an error message. Well, what was it? Did you? Google it. You know, let's click here. Let's do. Let's try this. Let's try that. And a lot of technical writing is just that. It's figuring out how something works by trial and error, um, by exploration. So, although it's helpful to have a lot of other things, but this is the kind of mindset you need: is this technical intuitiveness and how to figure things out. And by the way, feel free to ask any questions. Um, raise your hand. Stop me at any point. Uh, because I want you to get the most out of this. This is presentation for you, and so if you have information that you want, I want to deliver that. Any questions so far? Okay, before we get into our seven steps, I thought it would be great to start out with a sample application so that you really get a feel for what technical writing is. And I'm excited because this is an application that you can actually document. I'm not, I was kind of hoping you would. Uh, we have this this new initiative at the church, which is, and it's not really a formally stated one, but we're trying to do more community projects. So one thing that you may have experience with, right, is your ward calendar, which a lot of people, 
probably don't like, right? So the community project initiative has this idea that we'll get people from the community to develop a new calendar. And this is the prototype that they've coded so far. And look, it even has a we would love your feedback button. But if you look at this, this is pretty pretty um, new. There's a lot that's not done. Like, Look at all this space up here. You can tell they're still working on it. There's some kind of half button over here. And, I mean, if you click some of these things, it kind of works. It kind of doesn't. So a lot of times as a technical writer, this is where you come in. They, they've, they've got it about 50% there. And your job is to write instructions for it or to figure out the help material for it. So put on your technical writing hat. Where would you start with this? What, what, uh, where's point A? Not so much how to work the application, but how to approach it. What's your first question? Yes? Okay, so, yeah, what's the purpose of this application? What are you trying to do? And who are you trying to reach? So answers to those questions, what's the purpose for people in wards across the globe to schedule and coordinate events so they don't overlap, right? And so they're, so they're organized with their events, right? This is, your, this is the ward calendar you've been waiting for. And so, okay, so you identify your audience. Now, that includes people old, people young, 13-year-olds who can text 30 words a second, and people who are 80 who uh, have trouble turning on a computer. So you've got a, a, a very different kind of audience. Um, what's your next step? You've identified your audience. You know that you need, you need, you've got lots of different types of skill levels. What do you do now? Okay, figure out how to target them. So kind of figure out what, what uh, formats of help you're going to give, right? What, do these people want an online help pop-up pane? Do they want video tutorials? Do they want a quick reference guide in one page? Well, here's what the project manager sent me. He said, uh, he said this is what they've got so far, a little pop-up help. And I was like, and he said, can you take this? And there's actually three screens, so you click continue, you get another one like this, and then one more. He said, can you take this and make it just into one screen? And I said, okay. And I, st I looked at it for a while, and I said, wait a minute, I don't even understand where this pop-up is coming from. Did they click the help? Did this appear when they just went to the site? Is this something that's specific to the page, or is this just general? And, uh, for example, you know, there's no, like numbered steps of anything. So I was a little confused. I said, is this the full help for this? And of course, they never responded yet. <laughs> no, the guy's out of town. So, um, so, so I said, look, I think that we need to rethink how we're going to deliver the help here. I think what people need, they need an online comprehensive help file so that you have the help fully documented for the application. But people aren't really going to read that because nobody reads really long help files. I mean, unless you're unless you like to read encyclopedias. So people also need a quick reference guide, like a one-page, something they can distribute in a meeting and say, look, hey, we have a new calendar. This is how it works. These are the basics to get people into it up and running because that's really all they are going to have time for, two-minute help. But then there's lots of other people who, um, you know, as much as you explain it clearly, it just goes right by them. They are visual learners. They want videos. They want somebody to show them. And the next best thing is somebody to show them in a video. So 
I said, let's give them an online help file, a quick reference guide, and five videos. And so that's how I kind of targeted what I was going to do. Now, I said I, but really, we want, we want um, people in the community to do this. One other way that is really kind of interesting to try to figure out what topics people will need is to imagine your users, but not just to imagine your users, but to imagine them in problem situations. To say, okay, what about the elders quorum president who needs to schedule PPI interviews and he wants to sync it with Google Calendar because he's got everything else in, in Google Calendar? How does he do that rather than just schedule an event? Or uh, you've got an executive secretary who wants to schedule appointments for the bishop, but he doesn't want those appointments visible to people as even especially the executive secretary's children who may be scheduling appointments. Or what about the facilities manager who wants to make sure that there's no conflicts in building schedules? You know, how is he going to approach this application? How does he figure out, to, uh, how does he figure out if, where the building resources overlap? So as you start to imagine a user and think about problems they may have, it opens up your mind to what the tasks are that you need for the help. So that's kind of a fun experience. And so I came up with a list of, and I just did this like the other day because I was hoping to have this uh, ready so that people who wanted a documentation project could jump into this. So I came up with tasks that I thought needed documentation. Um, how to sign in was one because you need an LGS account. But how many people here know what an LGS account is? Does everybody? Maybe they use it here at BYU. I know. <laughs> Maybe not. But it's like this new single sign-on uh, system where you have one, one, uh, one sign-on account for all church applications. And some of you already have that if you've logged into your Ward website in the last four months or so. So that, that may be confusing. And how do you subscribe to a calendar feed? And by the way, the calendar feed idea is maybe a little... A little different. Um, maybe that's not the right term. So, so I came up with a lot of tasks, and then because we, this is a community project, by the way, let me go back up here. Because this is a community project, it has to be on a wiki because my vision is that we have lots of technical writers from the community actually coding this. I mean, the developers are coding it. We ha my vision is that we have technical writers writing this documentation as well. So there's this whole wiki that we have, and if you come down here into projects, and then go to local unit website project, and I hate this little alert, but anyway, won't go into that. And then right here, local unit user help. I put, and now this is the calendar, it's just one part of the whole re revamping of the, the local unit website. So after like five million clicks, we get into it. But here we have all these tasks, and the idea is that the community comes in here, and they're like, hmm, okay, I need to document this. Well, they, once you log in here, I'll log in so you can see the back end of this. I'm actually really excited about this, because I don't know if this will take off or what, and um, wait, what am I doing? Okay. The message comes because there's a mix of HTTP and HTTPS type stuff. Anyway, so I come back here, 
And now I have an edit button. So once somebody logs in, they click edit, and they can just start writing. Now you, suddenly you probably realize, whoa, what are these little equal signs? And they're actually wiki markup. So you kind of have to know wiki syntax. But for example, come into the sign-in section. And actually, I should have just clicked the edit next to that. But you could start writing, you know, one go to uh, LDS account. I don't even know what the address is. But, but people could just start coming in here and, and writing, and then this would be live. And the cool thing about these wikis is that now I just made a change, and I know somebody else is watching this page, so you can see uh, how things are immediately reflected. But there's a whole discussion component behind the page. So when I first put this up here, uh, some guy who moderates this was like, what are you doing? Where, where are all these new pages coming from? And so we had a little discussion. So you have this discussion component. And, and there's lots of other things here, like how are people going to upload an image? I should probably provide some instruction. But this is, this is just a sample of how you approach a project. You, you imagine your users. You figure out the purpose of the application. You come up with lists of tasks, what kind of format you're going to deliver. And here we happen to be writing it in a wiki. You may have a different tool that you're using, but uh, this, is the basic, this is the basic operating mode of the technical writing world. Any questions? So uh, how you want the community members to write this. Yeah. But how are the community members going to know the format and things to write it? Because uh, honestly, I didn't know any of that, but I still want to contribute. Yeah. So I'm going to put up a little quick start guide up here. I just didn't get around to it. But MediaWiki, there's actually, there are pages on this site that explain MediaWiki syntax. It's not it's anything complicated. For example, the number sign creates a one. The asterisk creates a bullet. You, there's an interface to upload um, images. The little back tick around words makes it bold. Maybe it's two back ticks. I don't know. But yeah, there's, so you kind of have to learn a little bit of the wiki markup, but there's no other good platform for collaborating with multiple authors online from remote locations. So, and I actually don't like wiki formats because I find them a little bit chaotic, but um, we could take and pull this into some, we could pull this data into some other interface. So you wouldn't even realize it's on a wiki and, and maybe style that a little more attractively to match the application or something. Or some people have, who are um, into wikis talk about kind of exporting the content from a wiki format into some XML format and then transforming it there. So you could take the code and just apply some little nifty converter tool that would then liberate it from the wiki syntax into whatever kind of format you want. So Now there, there are lots of different... Uh, by the way, I'll talk, more a little, I'll talk a little more about this project and other projects that you can jump into. As, uh, as you're trying to build your portfolio. I just wanted to give a little introduction there. And these are the different types of help formats that are common to what you create as a technical writer. The, the online help file is kind of a standard. It opens up, you've got topics to choose from that expand, and it's good for comprehensive material. Nobody's gonna sit there and read every topic, but they'll search it when they have a specific question. So it's good to have that. It's good to make it context sensitive, so you're on a specific page, and instruction relating to that page appears. So that's a little more fun, because it's more analytical. You're trying to figure out, well, what topics should appear? What are they going to want to know? Uh, another common thing you do is write interface text, so little error messages. 
I'm sure you've seen error messages that appear that just boggle your mind because they're written by a computer. Well, if you're working in a team, you need to identify them and say, look, let's rewrite this. So little, little info boxes, hey, you missed this, or hey, do this. That's usually your domain. My, one of my favorite deliverables is the quick reference guide. So this is, this is a quick reference guide for uh, some kind of Outlook migration that, that they had. They had people moving from one type, of, uh, one type of email account to another, and then they were merging two mailboxes, and it was confusing, and they just wanted some simple instructions rather than having to explain it on the phone to each person individually. And I usually do that in InDesign because it gives you a lot of control, but you can do it in Word too. Video tutorials are also something you, you will create, and, and these, are, these can be short two- to three-minute, ideally, videos where you narrate them or you put little captions either way, and you show how to do a task, and, and that can be a lot of fun too, right? It's not much writing, but you, you may have a script that you style conversationally, and then it's your challenge to deliver it in a warm and friendly, engaging way, which is actually quite difficult. There's e-learning. This falls more in the instructional design field where you have courses you want people to take because you want to make sure they're actually learning something and you can score them and they go from slide to slide. This is on how to use the church logo, by the way. You know that there's actually all kinds of rules about it. Can't be on a can't be on a yellow background, can't change the color of things. It's got to have a certain sacred space around it. It's usually white on black or black on white or dark, or dark on white or white on dark, one of the two. So yeah, there's a whole little course on that that somebody put together. I just showed you the wiki format that we're using. And also blogs. This is kind of cool. So I was talking about how um, we need to, in my last presentation, I was talking about the need to try to evangelize projects like this and get community involvement. That usually falls within the technical writer's role as well, or the marketing writer, but in this case, um, the technical writer too. So, oops, I'm on HD, that's why it's not working. So this is an article I wrote for the Mormon Channel Project. So uh, this was fun to write, and the Mormon Channel Project is this, this new site, I don't know if you've seen this, i got to show it to you if you haven't, radio.lds.org has like a dozen new podcasts at church launch and there's this 24-7 stream and, and, and uh, the application for this to play it on your iPod is what the community created but now they want to put it not just on the iPod and and uh, did I say I meant the uh, yeah okay not just on the iPod um, I've totally forgotten the name for the phone the iPhone okay sorry not just the iPhone but uh, other platforms such as Android, Windows Mobile, BlackBerry, you know, we're hoping that people will jump into this project. Well, how are they going to know about it? This article is supposed to try to increase awareness and it's something that will explain it. And this was fun to write. So you get to do lots of different types of things as a technical writer. Any questions about anything yet? I'm about ready. Oh, two more things. Podcasts which you don't deliver as much, but you could. I, I have a whole podcasting thing I do. Um, it's not so much instructional as conceptual uh, ideas that you can deliver in a podcast format. And then there's Twitter. Actually, lots of uh, church sources are on Twitter. The newsroom postings on Twitter, LDS Tech postings on Twitter. So you have, you have your hand in, in multiple formats. Okay, now we're going to get into the seven steps
for getting a job in technical writing. And I'm pretty confident about these seven steps. So if you do them, I really think you will get a job. Step number one, you have to start with some kind of learning foundation. This is my colleague, Paul, and he's holding up a book about XSLT, which is something that will, it's a kind of styling language that will take some kind of markup and change it into a format with the style and look and appearance you want. And he had a class on this at BYU uh, where he had to learn it and he did a project about it. And because of that learning and that foundation, uh, he was the prime candidate for a job that required knowledge of XSLT. So he's got lots of other books on his shelf from things that he has read. And this is why I think step one is to get some kind of foundation in technical writing. And this, maybe it's just a degree in writing with an emphasis on professional writing, which is what most of you are doing. And I think that's totally in line with step one here. But, but you can't really do much. You can't create a stunning portfolio. You can't like present yourself as an attractive candidate for a job or an in- internship unless you have some kind of learning foundation, unless you have a good command of writing, unless you understand that uh, instruction should be in numbered steps and that you don't need a full screenshot for each step. So you need some of the basics. So get, get learning and, and read from the many sources. You don't have to go to a formal school for this. You, you can probably get a lot of what you need to know from books, from articles, from blogs, from other pages on the web that you find. There's a lot out there. So step number one is to learn the basics of technical writing. By the way, any questions on step one? Okay, step number two, get, ex- get real experience doing technical writing. So this is why I, w- I was excited about the community project because the inevitable obstacle people run, ag- run up against when they're trying to get a job in technical writing is this dilemma that you can't get a job without having experience, and you can't get experience until you have a job. So you're like at this dead end, and you can't, you can't get past it. Well, that's not entirely true. You can get experience without having a job by getting involved in community projects like this. And this is not the only one you can do, obviously. This is just one that uh, I was hoping lots of people would show interest in. Uh, there's also um, many open source projects, such as WordPress, all of the documentation is open source. It's on a wiki called the Codex, codex.wordpress.org. And it's, by and large, pretty bad. So uh, there's lots of opportunities. There's thousands of plugins for WordPress that have bad documentation. So you could just start writing some documentation for WordPress plugins. Uh, and they're, they're not hard to learn. There's, there's a, Microsoft even has open source projects. Um, GNU, GNU has open source projects. Open Office has open has projects. So if you go to these sites, uh, you can jump in and start writing some documentation. The cool thing about the LDS Tech projects is that you will interact more with project managers and actual people uh, rather than just kind of going it solo. So the experience part is huge because even if you just have a little bit of experience, a lot of times employers see that and say, Oh, okay, he or she's got an experience. Uh, It doesn't have to be vast. Yes? So, some of the projects that you're 
yeah, yeah, you can totally pitch that as, a, as experience. And that can be a key thing that you place in your portfolio so that shows what you've done. I'm going to get to portfolios in a minute, but yeah, um, however you can find it. You can even rewrite your, you know, everybody complains about their VCR manual, right? Who has a VCR anymore, right? You've all got TiVos and other DVRs. But rewrite some electronic stuff that you've got at home. Rewrite the manual for that. Or try to try to steer your class projects into something like this, where you can actually have a finished product that you can add to your portfolio. Okay, step number three. Okay, well you've, you've, you're immersed in a project. You've got a little understanding about technical writing and kind of how it should go. Uh, maybe you've even read a style guide. But now you kind of need to know some tools so that you can format your help and create an online help or a video tutorial. You kind of you have to get your hands wet. And some tools. So I recommend learning four tools. One, a help authoring tool, often referred to as HAT in, in abbreviation. And there's three that are very common. One is Madcap Flare. That's the one that we all use uh, where I'm at. There's RoboHelp, which is also very popular. And the two are, are dead enemies. They hate each other, basically. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, but but lots, of people, lots of people use RoboHelp. And then there's Authorit. This is another one. I'm not saying you have to learn all these. It would take you a long time. But learn one, one of each kind of tool. Authorit is actually uh, quite expensive, but very powerful, and lots of people swear by it and love it. Yes? What do you think is the most common out of the three? Uh, the interesting thing about about the current state of the industry tools is that there's no dominant player. There's lots more that I haven't mentioned that uh, people will write and email me complaining about, but there's Doc2Help, there's, there's probably 10 different type of tools. But um, which is the most common? I personally like Madcap Flare because I think RoboHelp is dying, but other people will, will, will say that RoboHelp is more common, and some people are author at shops. So it really depends where you are. So look in your ads and see what tools they use. The page layout tool is something that I like for quick reference guides. I find that, and, and you know, it may not be the top priority tool, but InDesign, I really like it. For two-page, three-page, four-page guides, one-page guides, gives you a lot of control. You can make things look cool. You can style them. You can do all kinds of styles applied to objects or paragraphs and things like that. And, and you, you lay out brochures, and you can do one-pagers, and people look at that, and usually they're they're kind of impressed because they realize they couldn't create that in Word. So it gives a little more, uh, gives you more of a deliverable that you can put yourself behind. FrameMaker and Word are also kind of page layout things. FrameMaker is used for longer documents. And for example, Novell uses FrameMaker a lot. And FrameMaker ties in with RoboHelp. So, you know, if you learn FrameMaker, you should probably learn RoboHelp. But because um, they're both now Adobe products. And then Word, Word has lots of advanced features a lot of people don't realize. There's all kinds of styles. You can do a lot in Word. You can, I mean, if you're skilled in Word, you can probably make it look just as good as the other formats. So the only thing is that Word has a bad, bad rap. It's got a reputation for being unstable and hard to work with. So a lot of people always moan and groan when they have to work in Word, but you can do a lot in it, I mean, especially if you have macros set up and things like that, and templates. As far as graphics tools, Snagit is super easy to learn. You can learn it in an hour, and 
it will probably be totally adequate for most things that you do. Uh, but um, if you want to go a little bit more in depth, you want a more powerful tool, learn Illustrator. Somebody was asking about the Creative Suite, which or Adobe's Creative Suite, and I think that's great if you can learn all those tools in the Creative Suite. It usually has Adobe InDesign, Adobe Illustrator, Flash. These are really nice, powerful tools to know and learn. Did you have a question? Anybody? Okay, and the last one is a video tool. I once had a job interview where they said, look, we want you to write instructions for this little widget we have. And they really called it a widget. It was something that it was about uh, doing backups. And I said, okay. And I said, any format? And they're like, no, just give it to us in a basic format. We were looking at your writing, not your formatting. I said, okay. But I also made them a little video tutorial because I think most people learn with videos. And it kind of blew them away. They were really impressed by it. And I think um, it put me as like the top candidate just because I had this little simple video that I'd created. You can use Camtasia Studio, Captivate, Flash, whatever. Uh, it's, the video tools aren't that hard to learn. It's hard to figure out how to storyboard and put a nice voice to it and things like that. So, any questions on the tools? So I would recommend learning like one of each type. I only have 15 more minutes, is that right? Half hour? Okay. 11.15? I thought so. Okay, step four. <coughs> Put together a portfolio. This is by far the most important thing. I remember when I went to my first job trying to get into technical writing. I, I knew that I needed experience, but I didn't really have it, and nobody does when you're first entering it, right? So I put together this portfolio, not this one, this is just somebody's example. And I had it in this binder that I brought all my samples of everything that I, well not everything, everything good that I had done, about ten, a dozen different samples. And I brought it to the interview and gave it to them and they read it and they looked through it afterwards. And it was because of this little article about protein and how that works that I had written as a copywriter that impressed one of the interviewers who had a PhD in biology, and she was like, wow, you know, this guy can write clear. I, I, we think we'll, we'll take a risk and a gamble on him. And so your portfolio is, is by far your biggest strength. You need to have this. You won't get a job without a portfolio, really, um, unless you're lucky. This guy, uh, Stephen Kendis, has an article in one of the STC magazines called Web-Based Portfolio, or Developing a Web-Based Portfolio. And it's an excellent article. Um, if you have a digital web-based portfolio, first of all, you can send a link to somebody so you don't have to haul in a bunch of documents, right? And you don't have to worry about having copies of all your physical documents. You've got it online, and you can get your foot in the door that way. He recommends having a variety of materials and, and having it all be grammatically flawless. Yes? Um, would you suggest having a paper portfolio and an interview and a web-based portfolio? Uh, yeah, I know that can be tough though because sometimes you only have so many copies of things and they want you to leave them and then they never give them back to you and it's kind of frustrating. I still, my first technical writing job, I had this nice little glossy magazine that I totally edited all the articles and I was so proud of it and it looked perfect in my portfolio and I've never seen it after that interview because <laughs> I left all my stuff there. And then of course when you switch jobs, you never tell them you want your portfolio back because then they know that you're not going to be sticking around. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, print is good, too. What else? Uh, if you have a current job, 
this is a this is a big tip. If you have a current job doing something, let's say you have a student job working in an ice cream shop somewhere, and you always are the one who fixes the ice cream machines when they break. Well, can you write instructions for how to do this? Can you create a little video tutorial? Can you can you walk people through it? You have you may have the perfect opportunity to create some some high quality portfolio content. So think about that. And and like uh, uh, the professor in the back said, you may have projects in your class that would fit very well in, into a portfolio. Uh, maybe maybe you have some good essays that you wrote that just. You know that if somebody read them, they would say, man, this person's a writer. This person has got some literary chops. So add that. Maybe add your transcript if you've got a good one. It's always interesting, I think. I would really add your transcript if you've taken courses that show that you've got some learning and skill. Maybe you've got courses in InDesign or this Technology for Professionals course sounds great. Um, These other courses can kind of boost your credibility that you know what you're doing even though you may not have a long track history in jobs. Okay, my favorite, start a blog. So this is a blog by a guy named Brian Kennedy who wrote to me a while ago and said, I've been reading your blog and I decided to start one. And he wasn't too sure about it, but he decided to go for it anyway. And he just kind of chronicled what he was learning in technology as, as he's trying to break into technical writing. And I'm not kidding you, two weeks after he, he sent me this, uh, wait, let me tell you what he, what he said. He said, I was contacted a week ago by an IT company, Worldwide Tech, and offered an intern position. Okay, not an exciting position, but at least he's got something. Before the interview process, one of the managers took the time to look at my blog. He told me, he was impressed with what I was trying to do with it, and he found it interesting. We ended up talking for at least 20 minutes after the interview about communication-related concepts. It was the best interview of my life. Just earlier today, I received a call, and I was offered the position. So for Brian and for many people, your blog is actually just another part of your portfolio, but it's the part that shows your passion and your engagement. It brands you as somebody who is aware as somebody who's an expert, uh, it, it shows that you're keeping up with the latest trends. I have a couple of quotes by some people who are well-known. Um, Robert Scoble, have you heard of Robert Scoble? He's so popular and famous that if you just type Robert in Google, you get his blog. So he's a Microsoft poster child of blogging. And... He doesn't work at Microsoft anymore, but that's where he got his fame. He says, your blog is your resume. You need one, and it needs to have 100 posts on it about what you want to be known for. If you want to drive a cab, you better go out and take pictures of cabs. Think about cabs. Put suggestions for cabbies up. Interview cabbies. You better have a blog that is nothing but cabs, 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 cabs all the time. So if you do that, pretty soon people who give big cab conferences will be calling you to keynote their conferences because... They'll see you as an expert. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really the case that, that it brands you as somebody extremely aware. Penelope Trunk is a person who's a very famous blogger, um, at least in some circles. But she's got like 30,000 followers. And she writes on career advice. And she says, a blogger puts himself out in the world as someone who is interesting and engaging, just the type of person everyone wants to meet. So you remember from that Brian Kennedy quote, he said that his employer found his blog interesting. 
And if they find your blog interesting, they usually transfer that sense to you and think that you're interesting as well. She also says the reason that people who blog have great careers is that bloggers are always thinking about issues in their industry. And it's true. I think that bloggers are aware and they keep up. And so they do have better careers. So start a blog. Okay, number six, move to a tech hub. I don't think there are many jobs in Rexburg, Idaho for technical writers. So after you graduate, you maybe have to decide where you're going to start your life. And if you want to move into technical writing, I suggest you move into a place where there are lots of technical writers because that's where the jobs are. Yes? I'm 100% blind even with my glasses. I'll read them. Big yellow dot in California, <laughs> Los Angeles. Yep, yes. yep, you got it. Okay, so this is, this is part of... <laughs> Uh, a salary database report put out by the Society for Technical Communication, and it, it surveys where the most technical writers are. There's not even any in Utah or Idaho, so I'm not even in a good spot. But the big places are Seattle, obviously for Microsoft, Portland, San Francisco, California, or Los Angeles, Phoenix, Denver, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, uh, Miami, Chicago, Boston, New York. Minneapolis, a lot of the big big cities, but not all the big cities. For example, there's nothing in Nevada and nothing in Reno. There's not a whole lot in Oklahoma. You know, so if you're really thinking about where you're going to start your career, move someplace to someplace like Boston. Or uh, you may not want to move to California because it's so expensive. But but <laughs> I guess it's expensive everywhere. But but someplace like Dallas, I mean, may not be the greatest place to live i don't know i've never really lived there but there's lots of jobs there and phoenix there's lots of jobs there and so um it could be helpful i know that it's hard it's actually really hard to move someplace without a job because then when you look for an apartment people won't let you rent there until you have a job but you can't really get a job without having a location so it's another one of these difficult situations that you have to overcome but mostly I'm guessing that a lot of you don't have lots of kids and house mortgages and all kinds of debt. So you're at the most opportune moment to uproot yourself and, and go someplace exciting. Okay, last step, volunteer in the STC. So STC stands for Society for Technical Communication. And this is the Utah Intermountain Chapter site. Uh, when I was first a technical writer, I volunteered to to be the webmaster in my Suncoast chapter. And I redid the website, and it was a lot of fun, and I got to know people. And then, uh, because I was adding articles to the website, I got more visibility, and I volunteered to be the president of their chapter. And that got me lots of visibility, and, and people who I suddenly became friends with, and other professionals who gave me great advice. And all kinds of uh, people who had been there and done that, and knew which way to go, and it was great to have this network of people just in my local area. And we could go and talk, and, and it, was, it was incredibly beneficial. So when you get involved in the STC, don't just show up at a meeting and say, hey, are there any jobs, and then leave, because that's not really how it works. You have to show up and say, you know, I want to get involved, and start going to the meetings and say, how can I help out? Maybe it's creating a newsletter, or maybe it's doing some website work. And... And as you do that, you form relationships with the people. And those relationships are what guide your path into your career. Because they can tell you what companies hire. They can tell you how much you think uh, 
salary-wise they make in the area. They can tell you what tools to know. So it's an incredible resource. So those are seven steps. And here's my contact information. It's my wife and me at a WordCamp conference, blogging away. And this is my website, I'dRatherBeWriting.com. Feel free to send me questions, tom at I'dRatherBeWriting.com. Or if you're brave enough, you can also call me if I answer it. And I'd be happy to provide any kind of feedback that you want. Okay, do we have questions? So how many of you are feeling overwhelmed at the number of things you kind of need to learn in order to get a start? <laughs> you know, on the tool side, I think this is probably the most daunting, is that you, you read these descriptions of jobs. And they say, five years of experience, you must know uh, RoboHelp and XML and Camtasia and some other tool that they have specific to them. You must know, you know, vignette content management system. And you look at that and you say, I'm not qualified for any of this stuff, but don't let this, those descriptions scare you. If you can learn half of their tools good enough to create a sample little dummy help file, uh, that may be enough to convince them that you know what you're doing. You don't have to spend a lifetime trying to learn um, RoboHub. Learn enough in an afternoon to publish something, and people look at it, and oftentimes they're, they're impressed enough. Question in the back. Um, how hard would it be to, like, if you know Photoshop and not Illustrator, or, like, some other thing but not that, how hard would it be to take a class and Well, most of my colleagues and I like to think that companies should be smart enough to know that if you know Photoshop, then you could learn Illustrator, especially since they're part of the same suite and they look a lot alike. Sometimes companies are really narrow-minded and they, they just they have it in their head that you have to know certain tools and they're really fixed. And it's usually the HR departments that are like that. The reality is that nowadays almost every company has a unique tool set. So it's impossible to, to prepare yourself for every possible situation that they could, they could have. I think that if you show aptitude in tools, then a smart employer will realize that you have that, that you can carry that aptitude into learning their tools. And, and when I applied for my job at the church, I felt like that was much the case. Yes? So, like, if you just, on your resume or portfolio, you have a list of all the programs that you've worked with? Yeah. Uh, than a list of just the tools they listed. Yeah, if you if you list, yeah, if you know uh, 15 different tools, even if the job description only calls for three of them, definitely list everything you know. Um, the tools is a kind of a big part of your job interview for some reason. Uh, a lot of people think it's given way too much emphasis and it's probably the case. But definitely list the technologies you know. If you know CSS, put CSS. If you know um, snag it and you know, put that. If you think of all the things that you do know and add those there. Any other questions? Yes? It's kind of a silly question, maybe, but a lot of people just have blogs that are like their family blog. Yeah. Kind of want to have a separate. Yeah, I didn't talk about that, but I, but I wanted to. So, blogs, there's some, there are some pitfalls with blogs, right? 
no pictures uh, that would be embarrassing, right? Pictures of you toilet papering somebody's house, right? <laughs> Not that anybody here would do that, but, you know, nothing embarrassing, uh, nothing with a bunch of sloppy grammar or nothing like extreme political views or even political views. You, you want to have your blog be about the profession you're trying to enter. And, yeah, you can have a separate blog. Um, that's totally fine, but you wouldn't want to promote that on your resume. You want to promote the blog that's geared towards technical writing <coughs> on your resume. But I just mean, right. Unfortunately, and it depends. Some people do, and I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that if you're trying to enter the field and brand yourself in a certain way, you, you gotta kind of have to narrow that focus on your blog in order to have that branding happen. Well, I am out of town or out of out of time. One more question. Um, how, okay, say you've worked with InDesign and Photoshop, but you don't know how far your skills are supposed to go to be able to doc, to say, I know this. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Experience with and knowledge of. So, how do you so you're saying, uh, you know, you may know it, but only to a certain degree, and that's totally fine. I think that you don't have to be super skilled in it as long as you can show some aptitude in it. They may ask you to rank yourself on one to five, how qualif- how well you know it, but I think just knowing it is, is goes most of the distance. All right, I hope you guys uh, can go forward and get jobs in technical writing. It's a great field. I love it, and I'm passionate about it, and it's something that can be very fulfilling. So thank you. Thanks again.